Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Lydia Davis i samtal med Daniel Schelin. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sergelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Head, heart. Heart weeps. Head tries to help heart. Head tells heart how it is again. You will lose the ones you love. They will all go. But even the earth will go someday. Heart feels better then. But the words of head do not remain long in the ears of heart. Heart is so new to this. I want them back, heart says. Head is all heart has. Help, head. Help, heart. Ladies and gentlemen, art is not in some far-off place. Please welcome Lydia Davis. In my introduction, I, 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 I ended up quoting you, art is not in some far-off place. And I will continue to quote you now and then tonight, if that's okay. That's fine. What does it feel like to be quoted? I mean, do you feel understood or misunderstood or overrated, acclaimed? Well, of course, art is not in some far-off place. Is in one of my stories, but I'm actually quoting another book, so that feels fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, have you ever written a story about, for instance, a writer who is being quoted? Well, I, yeah, thank you. I've never written a story about a writer who's being quoted, but that's an interesting... Now I'll have to consider doing that. Yeah, because, <laughs> but yeah, because I, I thought that it might be a subject of matter to you, since it seems to be a rather boring one. Uh, <laughs> and if I'm to quote you again, uh, you once said or wrote, I can talk for a long time only when it's about something boring. Well, uh, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but is it so? Well, it must be interesting to me, even though it's objectively a boring subject. What, what, what makes a topic so boring that it becomes interesting? Oh, dear. <laughs> you ask difficult questions. <laughs> I have to go away and think about that. I, I suppose when I'm out with, a, with someone else on a walk, I become a very boring companion, for example, because I want to stop and look at everything. I want to see how the stones are lined up in a stone wall or, um, or uh, some little thing that's written on the side of a building. So I think I become very boring, but that's very fascinating to me. The details. So, yeah, the details. I don't know if that really answers your question. Yeah, but, but uh, you can... Well, it's... Uh, I would like to take a walk with you. Yeah. Uh, you would have to do a lot of standing and waiting. Okay. Uh, but it's more, more interesting to, 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 to stand and wait beside someone who is, who's uh, looking at some stones instead of waiting for someone who's been getting dressed or something, which I usually wait, I usually wait for my wife. Can I ask you what floga means or fluga or something? You kept yeah, using I the word fluga. Yeah. Um, I will get the fluga. Yeah. Oh. It's... Uh, it's uh, The Swedish title is called Samarbete med fluga. Oh, that's uh, what you were talking about, the fly. Yeah. Uh, okay. And I, I, uh, I have actually... A, 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 we get back to that. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I thought that 
well, let's get to this book. The language is a rather vital instrument, of course, in this book. But in one of the stories, the narrator tries to find the proper grammar uh, to express the fact that a father is dying. We also meet a translator and a critic that squabble about Proust. Uh, we also meet a, a person reading Beckett in a van, and we follow the exact progress of, of her reading. Uh, another character can't or thinks that he or she can't spell Nietzsche's name. Yet another is afraid that she or he suddenly won't be able to spell the word woman. And one story is called Example of the Continuing Past Tense in a Hotel Room and actually consists of no more than one sentence. Your housekeeper has been Shelley. Uh, what makes it turn out? What, what is it about language that obviously turns, opens up the creative space for you? Well, I suppose it's it's full of drama. You know, if you if you make one slight change to a sentence, um, as in the the la the story that you read um, about heart and head, if you if you you change the way you change the comma, if you take the comma out, you completely change the meaning. So, yeah. you say help, comma, head. You're you're addressing head, and the next line is help heart, and there's no comma. So, so the, I think I'm fascinated by how, what a huge burden of meaning and emotion something as small as the little comma can, can carry. And that's about the size of what the fly contributed. So mm. a fly can contribute this very meaningful little mark. You know? But did I read it in the right way, do you yes. think? Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> uh, I also see a writer that takes pleasure in what other writers, me for myself, sometimes fear the most, which is the unbridgeable, incurable, the distance between head and heart, so to speak, between language and emotion, language and reality. Uh, why am I barking up the wrong tree here? Uh, well, I like the idea of... Um a very intellectual person who, who has a great deal of feeling underneath, but who keeps pushing it down and talking about um, cerebral things. Mm. Um, and in, in the meantime, the reader, I hope, feels the emotion about to burst forth all the time. Mm. And it's never quite allowed to. Because uh, it's, it's hard to, for some people at least, to, to imagine anything more maybe detached than a dry, almost academic study. And there are quite a few studies in this book. Uh, there's a study of two elderly women's uh, everyday life, how they exercise, their eating habits, uh, their interests. And then there's a study of, of some school children writing letters. And we also find in, in this collection of short stories uh, almost bullet points where, 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 where you try to make sense of a relationship. There are subheadings. There are numerous attempts of, or, to organize and, and analyze. Um, what attracted you to that form? Oh, it, 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 um, I never know what's, what's going to come out next. And um, I think uh, some of those studies were almost making fun of academic studies. You know, the sort of the pose of the scholar and the overly pedantic position of a scholar analyzing, uh, analyze, sort of taking control of material. And, and taking ownership of it, and I, so I'm, I'm partly making fun of that, and partly um, uh, using it to to contrast the scholarly tone with the actual material, which is full of life. 
um, and, and f energy and um, almost roughness. So I, I like the contrast. It like is definitely very funny. Do, do you even laugh yourself when you, when you, when you write? I, I don't laugh out loud, I suppose, but I <laughs> smile. <laughs> Smiling is my way of laughing in those situations. Uh, but, but despite, and now we get to the fly here, uh, the fluga. <laughs> uh, despite all these attempts at, at, at orderliness, the collection is called Varieties of Disturbance, and throughout this book there, there are these flies appearing now and then uh, uh, in the text, always without warning. It's like, it's, it, it's irritating sometimes. I almost tried to shoo them off the letters when I read, because they, they, they kept, kept appearing so unexpectedly. And the translator, Marlin Westfeld, has, with a rather elegant and teasing gesture allowed this fly to, to land in the Swedish title. So that's the story behind that. But what's up with the fly? What, what well, you know, I, I didn't realize um, until I counted them that there were something like seven stories that had flies in them. So it was a kind was, of unconscious It thing. was not deliberate. I, re I write about anything that interests me. So if it might be the spelling of Nietzsche, but it might also be uh, a fly. And I'm quite, this is where we get back to the boring walk that you say you would like to take with me. But I can also stand in the kitchen and just look at a fly and see how it's, with its little nose sucker thing, it sucks up the little smear on the counter and, and then it wipes its hands like this. <laughs> and um, I can be very interested and get completely involved in the world of the fly. So I don't actually think of flies as irritating things to be gotten rid of. I think of them as interesting things. But it sounds almost like, like, uh, like my kids, <laughs> when, when, when they're totally, they're into something very, which I can't, can't understand what it is. is. Is it a thing that, did this, was it for you as a child? Did you, did you behave in the same way? <laughs> I suppose I took my time over things and just watched them. But it's true, I, when you say kids, I think of cer certain ages, you know, maybe three or four, when they're still rather calm and they're not too involved with their friends yet. And they will spend a lot of time just watching something. Mm. Or they used to before, electronic games and things. And those are kind of, that's the kind of age where, 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 where kids almost always ask very incredible questions as, as to That's the world. That's right. Why, where did the fly come mm. from? Yeah. Why, what's he doing? A tricky question. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but <clears throat> speaking about language again, what, what would you say, you said that you, you like to, to investigate with the, the, this relation between a language that, that could seem to be almost academic and dry and the emotions underneath. Uh, what could be the advantages of, of an orderly language compared to a language like August Strindberg, a flamboyant, colorful narrative style where the author's temperament is all over the place, if you know where I'm at. What could be the... Well, I, I enjoy actually both. You know, I'm not sure I'm capable of writing the second kind, the flamboyant kind, but I enjoy it. Um, I still demand a certain precision from it and concision. And um, one thing that interests me is that Proust, who writes such very long, digressive, um, elaborate sentences, said that he himself was a very concise writer. Mm. And I really agree with him because he, he, he never groped 
after something and said something in an approximate way and then said it a little better. He always was very precise about what he was saying, even if he was elaborating an idea and taking it um, uh, a long way. And um, so I, I, th I think uh, precision is what I value. So whether it's precision in a very short form that's only one line or precision in, in a very long form. Because that's interesting because, because there, there's another writer also mentioned in this book, which is Samuel Beckett. And at first glance, you might think that these two are each other's opposites. I mean, the, 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 the meandering Proust and, uh, and the, the uh, what do you call it, the fastidious Beckett. Uh, and, but maybe they're not. No, I think they're very, their word choices are very exact and very careful, mm -hmm. both of them. Yeah. Um, but w one of the advantages of a short story is that you can get rather straight to the point, uh, which is exactly what, what you do sometimes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I mean is that novels are often full of padding of, of supposedly creative scenes where people get in and out of cars and yada yada. Uh, you, on the other hand, now we quote you once more here. Uh, you once said, I think it was in an interview, I'm simply not interested at this point in creating narrative scenes between characters. Uh, <laughs> what did you mean by that? Oh. I did used to, to do that rather laboriously when I first started writing. Um, I wrote traditional short stories in the, in the line of Chekhov or um, Catherine Mansfield and um, felt very strongly that I had to follow the, the traditional form. So I set the scene and a character enters and there's a dialogue and there, you know, that it all had to be there. And I didn't exactly enjoy it, but I worked hard at it and tried to learn how to do it. And then at a certain point, I realized I can just dispense with all this. I really don't have to do any of it. Um, I can do whatever I want. And that was a, a nice moment. Because I thought I never felt so liberated as a writer myself as when I read that quote. You can actually skip all that nonsense. But, but, <laughs> but if writing isn't about narrative scenes between characters, then what could it be about? Well, then, then that's where, I mean, it can be, and, and I might, you see, what happens also to me is that when I've gone away from the traditional form for a while, it, I'm attracted back to it, and I think, oh, this would be fun to do again. Um, but you can, you can, you know, it, as in the, some of the writers we've mentioned, um, Proust had scenes between characters, but he also had long passages that were just memories or appeared to be memories um, and that didn't set up scenes between characters. Or you have um, Beckett in the story that, that I contain in one of my stories um, with just a, a few words, a, a fragment of a sentence, um, and no, certainly no scene between characters. Yeah. Uh, let's get to one of my absolute favorites in, in, this, in this book. Um, it's, a, it's a study of get well letters uh, <clears throat> that a class of fourth graders back in the 50s uh, got to write during a lesson as an exercise. Uh, exercise. They write to a classmate who is, who is at a hospital. He's, he will recover, he will be back, but he will also be away from school for quite some, some time. And the text is an analysis of the language that these school children use in their letters. Uh, from where did you get that idea? 
Well, I have to confess that I found a folder that my mother had kept. Mm -hmm. So this, this happened in my family. Okay. So did your mother, was, was your mother who was in the hospital? Or? No, my brother was in the hospital. Okay. And uh, so these were letters from his classmates. I don't always confess this, but it, it is interesting. <laughs> because there I, are... Oh. I more and more of, uh, treasure found material and real material ah. rather than relying on my imagination. I think it's probably more interesting than my imagination. Because actually, you get the feeling as a reader in, the, in this book that this, is, this wasn't the writer who, 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 who sat home working herself into a frenzy trying to, to, to make up plots, but, but instead one who ventured out into the world. Has, has, there, has it been such a development in your writing? Yes, um, more and more. And, the, and, and in, fa in fact, this, that story was very laborious, I have to say, because all the things that the sociologist narrator does, such as count how many words the girls tend, you know, how many words the girls' letters are, as opposed to the boys, and count how many, you know, different constructions, that, in that, all, all the sort of enumeration I actually did, so it was, it mm. took a long time just to do the study that I have her narrate. Um, uh, but I, now I forget what your question was. Uh, <laughs> and you, you probably forget, too. <laughs> so. <clears throat> I, you're just a fluent conversation. But if so, if in, 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 uh, so that the, the audience might know what we're talking about, I thought that I should read a passage from yes. this uh, uh, story in Swedish, since we have finally a, a great Swedish translation. Det handlar alltså om... Eh, en novell som heter Vi saknar dig, en studie av krya på dig brev från en fjärde klass som är en studie alltså av hur de här barnen, eh, deras språk vad de använder, hur de använder språket när de skriver till sin klasskamrat som ligger på sjukhuset eh, and I will read a passage called Formulaic Expressions of Sympathy Standardformuleringar för sympatiyttringar saknar dig Många av barnens brev innehåller standardfrasen Vi eller jag saknar dig. Ofta i par med Vi eller jag hoppas att du snart kommer tillbaka. Vän inleder med de två känslorna men sen hamnar han i bryderi med hundar i stil och så tätt mellan orden att de nästan går i varandra avslutar han Jag tror det jag kommer på för jag kommer inte på något mer. Några av Väns bokstäver har hamnat prydligt på raden andra seglar iväg ovanför den. Och en del har sjunkit ner under raden. Det är möjligt i hans fall, precis som i andra barn som uppvisar ett misst mått av oro, att bokstäverna inte hamnar på raden därför att barnet överkompenserar. Av rädsla för att bokstäverna ska hamna under raden håller han dem över raden. Av rädsla för att de ska hamna ovanför raden tvingar han dem ner under dem. När vi föreställer oss dessa barn som lär sig skriva prydlig skrivstil måste vi hålla i minnet att en rad faktiskt inte är en fix plats för en bokstav. Det är ett konceptuellt riktmärke och ett mycket tunt sånt. Och en nybörjarskribent tycker det är svårt att exakt pricka raden med varje bokstav. Därför känner somliga barn ett visst mått av oro inför själva handlingen att skriva skrivstil oberoende av vad de försöker uttrycka. Joan är mer specifik och därför mer pregnant när hon genast målar upp klassrummet. Jag saknar dig i vår rad i skolan. Hon förmedlar dessutom en känsla av solidaritet mellan barnen i just den raden. Vår rad. Sally är ännu mer specifik och trots att hennes brev är ett av de kortaste förmedlar det de starkaste och tyngsta känslorna. Hoppas du mår bättre. 
Din plats är tom. Din strumpa är inte klar. Den sista meningen avslutas med punkt, men sen följer lite mångtydigt ett gement M så att vi inte kan vara säkra på huruvida Sally tänkte fortsätta meningen eller börja på en ny när hon återigen dröjer vid dystrare utsikter och skriver Men jag tror inte att den kommer att bli klar. Vilken funktion män fyller här är också oklart. Särskilt skrivstil är otydlig och tunn och bokstäverna är extremt små. Utom när hon, eftersom hon uppenbarligen missförstått lärarinnans direktiv, förlänger de höga bokstäverna som L och F lite tvekande uppåt så att de nuddar raden ovanför. Innehållet tillsammans med det korta brevet och Särskilt lilla handstil skulle kunna tyda på antingen en medfödd pessimism eller en låg självkänsla, trots att hennes versala H uttrycker utomordentlig livsglädje och storslagenhet. Uh, it was funny, obviously. Uh, <coughs> oh, I was, I was going to say about that that um, that what what interests me also is is readers' reactions, and it shows you how different readers are. That there is not that there are no rules about what effect a story will have, because some readers uh, find it hilariously funny. And they laugh and laugh, but others uh, say this is a very tedious story. This just goes on and on, and then just uh, there's no interest whatsoever. They simply don't get it, you know. Or, but it just shows you how different people are. Yeah, but you you got it, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 but first, it's, it's heart-rending <coughs> to see how it seems to be the nature of, of of the written language to be so normative and full of rules when you read this. I mean, how even unnatural the, the written word can look, how it seems to be almost, almost the enemy of imagination. Uh, or am I too much of a pessimist here? No, I think I, think I, I was very touched by the letters, and, and that's what started the story. And, and any story really starts with me being moved or touched by something. And I was very touched by the letters, and I think I was touched by the way they were all held to a certain form and the, the teacher teaching them that form and yet their their little individuality came f out despite mm. this rigid form. You know? Yeah, because of course it could be argued that it's, it's a bit stigmatizing to talk about innate pessimism in a child based on the evidence of three sentences in a school exercise, but there is, isn't there also a beauty and, and some dignity in, in such a close and sensitive reading of just an ordinary... The letter. Yes, and I, and I just got more and more deeply into the analysis, you know, the, the analysis of the handwriting that went below the line and the handwriting that went above the line. <laughs> it just, I had, I, I love seeing how much you can squeeze out of one thing, you know. Uh, to, to what extent do you think that we leave traces of ourselves in our everyday language? Oh, all over, all over the place. I mean. It, the fact that even our uh, our voices are so recognizably different, you know, you know lots and lots of people, but you have no trouble knowing who's on the phone after a couple of words. Um, so we're we're so individual. Because uh, I'm struck by, <clears throat> and this is a kind of a tricky part. I, I'm not sure. I've been thinking about this, and I thought that maybe I'm crazy. I, maybe I'm seeing something that is not isn't there, but. I'll just ask you this. Uh, 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 not only in this collection, but also in some of your earlier work, uh, you use what I would like to call uh, uh, the sender's space, or the, the, the agent space. There's probably some fancier, more fancier word to it. That is, the, the narrator is sometimes 
even more interesting than the story narrative. Mm. Yeah. A, a banal example from everyday life could be uh, the notes people put up in shared kitchens, for instance. Clean up your, your mother doesn't work here, four exclamation <laughs> marks, some misspelling and so on. So, so in that note, the sender is more interesting than the, the actual mes message. And this is what I would call the sender space, or the agent space. Uh, is this something that you've been exploring, or...? or I, I, don't do, I don't do anything very consciously. I mean, I try to capture something consciously, but I don't plan ahead and say, I would like to s explore the role of the narrator or the mysterious narrator. I never have a conceptual plan to begin with of that kind. But, um, but in, in this case, the, the only fictional aspect was the narrator. Every, you know, everything else, the material and the setting and so on, was taken from life. But the narrator was not me. She was a, a persona. And um, I was certainly aware that she, she, you know, she figured in the story. She is a character. How, how would you describe her? Well, she's very uptight and um, nervous about getting everything correct. And she's suppressing her own sympathies, although I think she allows her sympathies to come out at the very end when it's, you know, she's nearing the end of her studies. You can see a hint of her human feelings. But she's, she's a very, tries to be very objective. So there's so much drama going on behind the text, and that's so interesting, uh, I think. Uh, but do you think that she's crazy or just deeply human? Uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, she's a very good scholar, a very good scientist. Yes. <laughs> okay. um, but she represses her human feelings. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but have you ever yourself, for once, for instance, stumbled across, across an old text of yours? For instance, maybe you wrote about a bicycle ride for 20 years ago. And it, but instead of reading a story about a bike, you 20 years later, you, you, you end up catching a glimpse of yourself instead. Oh, here was a young, pretentious writer trying to sound <laughs> like Proust. Or I was never pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Well, I, I do know that I would sort of um, play the straight man, uh, as in a comedy, comic duo. You know, I, I would play the part of, of someone who wasn't aware that she was odd or, or mm. funny. Um, and in fact, I didn't, I, it's hard to believe now, but the early stories, when, when they were funny, I wasn't aware that they were funny. I, I simply adopted, with utter sincerity, the persona of a rather strange person who would then appear to be funny to someone else. But I wasn't quite aware that she was funny. Um, How was it in school? Yeah. Did, it, did you have problem touching the line? As, <laughs> I don't know. I should go back and look. <laughs> but did you want to become a writer all from the beginning, or was that when did you decide? Well, it was more complicated. Both my parents were, were, were writers, and um, the the family revolved very much around writing and language and um, e expressing oneself well. And it, we, my brother and I, uh, and my sister, we spoke already very grammatically because we grew up with my parents. So we wouldn't be criticized for our grammar. We'd be <laughs> criticized for our style, even, you know. Um, Oh, I'm not that tired. And we'd be called on that. My, my father would say, what do you mean you're not that tired? 
how tired? What, what, are you what do you mean exactly? They, they would almost not allow us to use careless expressions or casual expressions. Although they did have a sense of humor, it's not that they were pedants. Um, but we, what I mean is that we were always aware of how we talked and how we sounded. Like they, they give us this huge self-consciousness. Oh, but to get on to your question about writing, so I was good at writing, and that um, coming from that family, it, it made it seem very obvious that I should go on to be a writer, but I didn't actually enjoy it for many, many years. I preferred music. I, I listened to music and followed scores and played music. Do you play um, an instrument? I play the piano, um, and I played the violin, and I played the guitar, and, you know, but I'm not terribly good, but I loved the piano. And, uh, and so that was really what I loved to do. I wasn't one of these children who was always writing a novel and, you know... Uh, but it sounds like your parents almost deliberately tried to make, turn you into a writer. Well, they couldn't <clears throat> help it. They just, you know, they heard language and they couldn't help talking about language. So, yeah. uh, <clears throat> uh, now, I, I would like to take my turn here as the, the uh, analytical linguist here, just like the, this person uh, in the book. But instead of letters write, written by school children, uh, my subject is the person behind this book. So I've I studied your texts, and I will, <laughs> and I made some observation regarding your we'll, personality. We'll see if you're yeah. right or wrong. Uh, <laughs> observation number one: <laughs> mothers. Uh, there are several stories here uh, where, where a mother's behavior causes frustration. Uh, someone has lent a picture to a friend, and the mother gets angry. Another mother causes disappointment when turning down a kind of offer to help. Yet a third one makes a short comment about a cousin, and that's, that's the entire story. It's often very funny, and we, we were, so we're clearly here in the company of a writer who thinks mothers are exasperating and funny simultaneously. Uh, what's your comment? <laughs> <laughs> My poor mother. <laughs> um, well, you write about things that are difficult, and so you, you write about mothers. Uh, mothers are difficult. Why There's some are mothers so that are not difficult, but that's a rarity. I've, the, the, all the women I've talked to, rarely is there one who, who just says, I was just wonderful friends with my mother. We understood each other perfectly. And I had a very strange uh, lunch with, with, I think, three other women. I can't, I wish I could always remember it exactly, but we were all talking about what our mothers would, how they would react if we won a prize, had some great honor. And every reaction was negative, but they were all different, you know. Mm -hmm. One would say, one said, her mother would say, well, it must have been a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and one said, well, they probably couldn't think who else to give it to. <laughs> and I, I, um, I wish I could remember the other two, because they were the same. They were, they were but, but this was what these women thought that their mothers would have said. That's right. And that's very interesting. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm going to get back to that, I think, because uh, it's, everything's so complicated when it comes to mothers. They're, they're kind of a mirrors, I think. That's my, my plan. But, but I, for my part, I love yelling at my mom, but only when I'm talking to myself. Uh, what could that be a sign of? 
Why, what do, is well, you a, don't dare yell no. at your mother. And, and we, we have such mixed feelings because we, we love our mothers also, so we don't want to hurt them. That used to just bewilder me that, oh, she had hurt me quite a lot when I was young, but when she's an old woman lying in bed, you know, I can't hurt her back, you know. <laughs> I don't want to hurt her. So it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, observation number two. <laughs> See what, what one led to. <laughs> I don't know. Domesticity, that is house and households, uh, housekeepings. One of the stories is, is about all the maids, all the housekeepers that a woman writer tries to hire over the years in order for her to be a free writer. And another story describes a good taste contest between a husband and a wife who has the best taste. And a third one depicts how the lives of two old women have been completely focused around their homes and housekeepings. Why do you think that the concept of home and housekeeping keeps appearing in the book? Well, I suppose if I were independently wealthy and I never touched the dishes and never cooked a meal, it wouldn't enter the same way. But it, it just enters because, because I'm interested in you know, every aspect of my life, and that includes a lot of housekeeping. Because so. I thought that the reason why... I, I, I recently moved to a house with my wife, and all the gender roles that we thought we killed off suddenly came to life overnight. So I'm running around with a hammer, and my, I don't know why, and my wife is cooking, and she doesn't know why. <laughs> uh, do you think that house owning could be detrimental to gender equality? Oh dear. <laughs> I'm not good on, on politics. <laughs> and also my husband is in the audience. <laughs> okay. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't know that he would come with you. <laughs> Observation number three, it's my final one. Uh, mild neurosis caused by too much brooding, that is, people who think too much. And we, all, we already heard when, when you're out on a walk. Um, uh, but um, there's one story here called Kafka cooks, uh, cooks Dinner, for instance. The character broods almost to a, to a point of absurdity over the question, what should I serve my guests for dinner? And in another story, a person is brooding over the concept of bad times and bad feelings in a relationship. And a third one thinks a lot about how to figure, tries to figure out how to see 20 sculptures in one hour. <laughs> uh, do you ever get stuck brooding this way? Uh, uh, I actually have more fun with it than it sounds. I mean, I start, I start with a question that someone else might just um, dismiss, you know, oh, I thought we had plenty of time to see these sculptures and we don't have plenty of time. Why is that? And, and, and you just dismiss it and shrug your shoulders and go on. But instead, I, I like to meditate on the subject of time. You know, that three minutes is... You think it's a short amount of time, but then in the end you realize it's a long, quite a long time. And I guess I, I think a lot about things like that over and over again, you know, that five seconds is a long time. Or is it a short time? So I come back to these again and again. It doesn't, but not in an unhappy way. It, it's not a tormenting thing. It's a happy, it's intellectually intriguing to me. I, I like using my mind. Um. <laughs> Oops, sorry. <laughs> But what, what I, I, suddenly, I suddenly saw some, something here. Because uh, 
we have three observations now. Um, now you have another? No, uh, but mm. I, <laughs> when I try to sum up this analysis, I discover now that, that uh, a disturbing fact. <clears throat> Mothers, houses and households and brooding. Uh, that's exactly what I have problems with in my life. So what I thought here was an objective analysis of you based on your texts turned out to be a rather self-centered reflection of my own life. Uh, but that <clears throat> so gets back to what you said earlier, that the, the, the questioner or the, the sender of the message is, becomes interesting. Exactly. Now I'm doing it myself. Without, yeah. uh, uh, but what is it with... You know how short stories work. I think there's something with the short story that has this mirror effect on the reader. As opposed to the novel. Mean. Yeah, maybe, maybe to, to a higher extent. Or? Maybe. Um, I mean, there's one work I wrote recently that I really thought uh, the narrator would be uh, truly invisible, and yet people still paid attention to the narrator. And that was a, a, a piece about the cows across the street from me where I live. Mm -hmm. And they were just, it was something like 82 observations of the cows. And that's all it was, just I was looking at them, I was watching the patterns they made. Um, and I really wasn't bringing myself into it except as the agent of the observation. You know, that the cow, you know, if I held my finger up uh, to the window, the cow was as long as my finger or something. Um, but, and yet people persisted in paying attention to the narrator still. Well, what did they want to know? Oh, just who is this person who's always looking out at the cows? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but this is what I thought might be central in this book, the, the, the mirror effects. People try to measure themselves against one another, like the husband and the wife competing in this, in this good taste contest. And, and every attempt, maybe I'm exaggerating now, but every attempt at order becomes disturbance to some extent. And... Every attempt at detachment turns into introspection, and, and, and every attempt even to understand someone else, it is yourself that you manifest. Or am I too pessimistic here? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I suppose that's true of a lot of them, but I hope it isn't distracting from the material itself of the, of the story, you know, that everything reflects back to the narrator. I'm sure it's to different degrees, really. Um, if you know the the title story about the fly, you know I wrote this sentence, but the fly added the punctuation. Whatever it, it, that story is, I hope that focus is also on the fly, or on the idea, not necessarily the narrator or the fly, but the idea that an accidental creature can. Uh, help you with something or collaborate with you. But it, it, could it even be irritating for you that despite all the attempts of, of making the narrator invisible, the, the more you try to do it, the, the more people pay interest to the narrator. You, you try to be invisible as a writer, but the more you try, people, the more people want to see you. Could, could it be... Well, I haven't been irritated yet, so... <laughs> <laughs> but could, it, could there be such an effect that the more you try to hide... It could, there the more could of be, our imagination it triggers. But since I'm always looking out at the world and seeing the world, I would think it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen too much. We should also watch the cows as yes. well. Um, <laughs> uh, 
I will quote you one last time now. There seem to be three choices. To give up trying to love anyone, to stop being selfish, or to learn to love a person while continuing to be selfish. Which choice have you made in your life? Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear. I won't answer that one. <laughs> uh, Little days, thank you so much. I would like to ask you to read some, mm. some, some pieces. Sure. Um, uh, now, you had uh, chosen some, and I think yeah. they were in this copy. But of course, it's, there are a lot of pages here. You turn down some. Do you want to find them more quickly than I oh, can? Well, you just sit back and relax, and I'll try to find <laughs> them. Um, first, we had uh, Jane and the. Silence is good. People should not be uncomfortable. Jane and the cane. Jane and the cane. Mother could not find her cane. She had a cane, but she could not find her special cane. Her special cane had a handle that was the head of a dog. Then she remembered. Jane had her cane. Jane had come to visit. Jane had needed a cane to get back home. That was two years ago. Mother called Jane. She told Jane she needed her cane. Jane came with a cane. When Jane came, Mother was tired. She was in bed. She did not look at the cane. Jane went back home. Mother got out of bed. She looked at the cane. She saw that it was not the same cane. It was a plain cane. She called Jane and told her it was not the same cane. But Jane was tired. She was too tired to talk. She was going to bed. The next morning, she came with the cane. Mother got out of bed. She looked at the cane. It was the right cane. It had the head of a dog on it, brown and white. Jane went home with the other cane, the plain cane. After Jane was gone, Mother complained. She complained on the phone. Why did Jane not bring back the cane? Why did Jane bring the wrong cane? Mother was tired. Oh, Mother was so tired of Jane and the cane. <laughs> I think I actually loved the elementary readers that we had when we were children, you know, which I think they don't have anymore because they were considered too boring. But we weren't bored because we were learning to read, and that was very exciting. But it would be, you know, Bob and Jane play ball. Yeah. Bob throws the ball. Jane throws the ball. The dog caught the ball. That sort of thing. But I loved those books. Anyway. Back to basic. <laughs> uh, the second one. Let's see. Uh, good, uh, tropical Storm. <clears throat> this is very short, just two lines. Tropical Storm. Like a tropical storm, I too may one day become 
better organized. Thank you so much, Lydia Davis.